every time you and I plan, all we have to do is go to the Lord and ask him if he wants this. Lord, is this something that you want? Imagine what that would look like if we brought all of our plans to the Lord. Now let's turn our attention to today's text, James chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We confess that we are like grass. We flourish for a time like a flower in the field, but the wind passes over us and we are gone. But your steadfast love, O oh Lord, is from everlasting to everlasting. And your righteousness to our children's children, to those who keep your covenant. And so we pray that you would show us your righteousness and your covenant love this morning. Would you show us your faithfulness? Speak through your enduring word that we might know you and your everlasting faithfulness. We ask in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. We continue our series through James today with another difficult topic. Last week, our passage focused on the sin of pride, and we saw that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And today, we find James taking an aim at another one of our sins, presumption. Now, the word presumption may not hit you as hard as pride, uh, but if you would indulge me for a minute, hopefully you'll be able to agree with me that we need this word in James. And when I first studied this passage, I found it you know, a little hard to pin down what exactly it was that James was getting at. What, what's the difference uh, between these two problems that he presents or these two groups that he presents? And it's pretty clear right off the bat that James is putting up two groups. So in verse 13, you have the group of what we say, those things that we say. We say that today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. And then later in verse 15, James sharply contrasts that with what the second group of what we ought to say. Instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But I got stuck when I tried to pinpoint what it is that was the major difference between those two. 
And my first thought was submission. I thought, well, maybe he's getting at submission. But uh, you may remember that we have a, a staff meeting here at our church every week. And every week at that staff meeting, we present our sermon, our topic, and our outline. And when I presented that it was submission, the, the rest of the staff, I think they rightfully said, you know, it feels like there's more than submission going on here. It's not just submission. Submission doesn't catch, you know, what James gets at when he talks about our arrogance, when he talks about our evil and our boasting. And so someone gave the suggestion, I think it was Nate, it's like, well, maybe this is about ambition because we had just had a, a conversation that kind of spoke towards ambition. And, and, and we considered it and we thought about, yeah, this might be about ambition. But again, as I, as I kept taking that word back to the text over the next week, ambition quite didn't get at everything. Ambition didn't deal with, with um, you know, whether it's our, our arrogance or our submission and our humility. And so next I thought, well, what if I can use one of James' own words? And in verse 16, James calls those who boast arrogant. I said, maybe this passage is about arrogance. Similar to ambition and arrogance, it gets some of it, but it doesn't capture the whole picture. But as I considered and read more on this passage, I came to the conclusion that I think presumption is what covers all of those things. Our presumption is what often proves our need for submission. It's our presumption in which we are guided by our ambition. Our presumption leads us to unhealthy boasting in our arrogance. And in fact, our presumption is the product of our arrogance. And so while presumption may not be as much of a buzzword, it may not quite get to your heart like if we say the word pride, I still think that that topic is the best heading that captures the magnitude and the breadth of what James is getting at and what we need to hear this morning. So if the Lord has been challenging you in any of these ways, submission, arrogance, ambition, or even pride, may this be a passage that speaks to that and shows you God's means for fighting this type of sin in our life. And looking at the text, we see that James has an incredibly practical way of detailing this fight. And as he does so often, he takes it immediately to our practical experience. And so we're going to talk about three ways that we experience presumption. And these are our three points this morning. We experience our presumption in what we say. And when we look at what we say, we see in contrast, James teaches us what we ought to say. And when we come to a realization and we turn from what we say to what we ought to say, we see that that changes everything we do. And so those are our three points. What we say, what we ought to say, and how that changes everything we do. What we say, what we ought to say, and how that changes what we do. Let's look at each of these in turn. So first, James points out what we say. And ultimately, what we say is presumptuous. Looking more closely, we can divide what we say into two parts. James addresses two different things. First, you have the content of what we say. And then after that, James gives a description of the character of what we say. So let's look at the content of what we say. In verse 13, we say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade and make a profit. And this one little verse summarizes so much of our presumption. First, 
We presume to know where we're going to go and what we're going to do when we get there. That is, we presume our plans, where we go and what we do. And now here, the language in all of this is intentionally vague, and it's vague so that it can be broadly applicable to any situation, to your situation, my situation. We're going to go into such and such a town. But the principle, it hones in on what we think we are going to do and our presumption of our plans. But not only do we presume our plans, what we're going to do, we presume our time. We think we'll leave tomorrow and spend a year there. And that's the second portion of our presumption. So so we presume our plans. We presume our time. And thirdly, we presume our profit or what you might call our gain or success. So that's the the summary of the things that James is is calling to our attention that we presume. We presume our plans, our time, and our profit. And in a moment, we're going to look at at the contrast of what we ought to say, and, and we'll see, we'll get to compare what we ought to say to these things that we presume. But before we do that, we need to heed James' characteristic of his characterization of what we say. What does James, how does he describe these presumptions of our, our plans and our time and our profit. Well, in verse 16, he explicitly tells us, he leaves no doubt as to the character of these things. Verse 16, James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So our presumption is boasting in arrogance and it's evil. How is it that we boast in our arrogance? Well, I think it's helpful to remember that James has already said a little bit about boasting in this letter so far. And in the opening section of this letter in chapter one, James calls us to a life of wisdom. He calls us to a life that is perfect, whole, and complete, lacking in nothing. And, and as I mentioned in a previous sermon, that part of James's message, part of his, his writing this letter and giving this to the church is to call us to a life of holiness. And so in chapter one, when he's describing this life, the holy life, the the life that is perfect and complete and lacking in nothing, he describes it in one of the ways he does it in this this way, where he says, let the lowly boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. So what we see here in chapter four seems to be related to that. And we see in chapter four that our presumption is the opposite of the type of boasting of a holy life. When we presume on our own plans, our own time, our own profit, we do so in defiance of God. We're not boasting in our lowliness or our humiliation. Instead, we're boasting in our exaltation. And this kind of presumption is the opposite of God's character. So instead, James is calling us to follow in our Lord's footsteps. And our path would be one of laying down our lives for our neighbor so that we can boast in our lowliness. Laying down our own desires and our own needs and our own preferences so that we can boast in our humiliation. And when we do that, there is no boasting of any goals or any plans we think we're going to accomplish. This principle has, uh, has actually been an encouragement to me here in my transition into Bellingham and into Christ Church. 
And when when I interviewed here, and for a portion of it, Corey was with me that weekend, and we got to spend a lot of time with the deacons and with the elders and with the community here. And one thing we kept seeing is we were surrounded in our time here by these incredibly capable and wonderful people. We were struck by how many talented people the Lord had brought to this one small place. And yet, in that time, and one of the reasons we were so eager to come be a part of this community is that we saw true humility. Now, I'm just on the cusp of being able to tell you guys about this. I'm just new enough where you guys know that that humility has nothing to do with my influence here. That is the humility that the Lord had worked through his children here. But I will say that Since that interview, since the time, since our transition, I can attest to the fact that Christ Church follows the Lord in these ways. Christ Church wants to plan and do wonderful things, and yet we want to do them in humility. And so we lay them at the feet of our Lord. We do things not for our own profit, but for the profit of others. Not for our own exaltation, but for the exaltation of the Lord. And we, we confess that we do not do them perfectly. But as someone new to this community, take encouragement, church, that the Lord is working this in you and it has been an encouragement to me and to my family. And I still think we also need to heed James' warning because this is a warning to us all. We are all tempted to presume and to boast in our arrogance. And James goes on further, and he calls that arrogance evil. That is, when we boast in our arrogance, we are the opposite of holy. When we presume on our plans and our time and our profit, we turn away from the Lord. Those temptations are steering us away from him. So if that's the case, if what we say is presumptuous, and if our presumptions are arrogant, boasting. I think we naturally next ask the question of, well, if that's the way that we are, and if that's what we say, then what should we say? And that's our second point. Our second point is what we ought to say. And in one way, this contrast could not be more explicit in verse 15. If you look at that verse, James says clearly, instead, so not what you say, instead, you ought to say, Lord willing, we will live and we will do this or that. In comparing these two statements, the biggest difference then is those first two words, Lord willing. So in a a massive way, the answer to our presumption is our submission to the will of God. And though this contrast is as vast as an ocean, once we submit ourselves to the will of God, notice it doesn't take away our desires to plan and to think about the future. Because the actual message isn't that different. The phrase used in verse 13 doesn't change much. We still get to say we will live. We still get to say we will do this or that. But the major difference is that we submit those things to the will of our God and we give up any personal gain. So what does that look like? What does it look like for us to submit these things to the will of God? Well, thankfully, James has provided a good alternative 
an alternative to our boasting about those three things we talked about, boasting about plans, time, and profit. He actually gives us a counterpoint for each of these. So first, if we look uh, at our plans, the Lord calls us to submit those plans to him. And again, this might be the most important part of battling our presumption. We start by saying, Lord willing, if the Lord wills. And so the cure for our presumption is not doing nothing. It's not, it's not laziness. The Lord doesn't call us to laziness. In fact, his scriptures are clear throughout that we are called to be an active part of his kingdom. Rather, the Lord calls us to take all of our plans and all of, of what we would do and take them to him, make them subservient to his will. And I think we can do this in a very practical way. Every time you and I plan, all we have to do is go to the Lord and ask him if he wants this. Lord, is this something that you want? Imagine what that would look like if we brought all of our plans to the Lord. So do you have some major, maybe even audacious goals that you want to, to accomplish in your life? That is fantastic. The Lord often uses audacious goals. I would even say some of the goals that we talk about here at Christ Church are pretty audacious goals. But we take our goals to the Lord and we ask, is this your will? And when we do, we find freedom in it. Because some of those goals, the Lord will bless and you will be, by the promptings of the Spirit, by the encouragement of the community, you will be empowered to carry those out. And some of those goals might get redirected where you think you're going one place and the Lord redirects you to another. And some of those goals, even some of those goals, you will try and work and they will come to nothing. But in his kindness and in his mercy, he will use all of these things to your good so that you may be perfect and whole and complete and lacking in nothing. But God is not only after our plans, he's also after our time and our profit. And so when it comes to our time, James tells us his, his counterpoint for what we say, what we ought to say, we ought to recognize that our time is short. So listen to verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a time and then vanishes. Now, I would love to spend more time here. I love this verse. I find it so helpful. But for the sake of our time this morning, let's just focus on the fleetingness and the insecurity of our time. You and I don't know what's going to happen tonight. I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus told in Luke 12. It's a parable of this rich man who had gathered all this wealth. And after gathering all this wealth and setting it up in a storehouse, he kind of sits back and says, now, well, yeah, now I get to eat, drink, and be merry. God comes to him and says, you fool, your life is required of you tonight. So coming to terms with our own uncertainty and with the length of our time, it cures an unhealthy, ungodly presumption. And as I thought about this, I, I, I thought that this, it can kind of affect us in two different ways, right? It'll push, typically push you in one of two directions when you are confronted with the insecurity of life and the fleetingness of it, some people, it will push towards hopelessness or to hedonism. 
And in fact, the book of Ecclesiastes goes down some of these paths when it considers life outside of God. It can, apart from God, the insecurity of life can drive you to despair. But amazingly, for God's beloved children, recognizing that our time is short can offer an immense encouragement. And so just think about these few ways. One, when we recognize that our time is short, it can so often soften our trials. And if you've been following with us through the book of James, you know James has trials in mind when he's writing this letter. And when we recognize our time is short, often those trials are put into perspective. And it's the difference of, are you running a sprint or are you running a marathon? And every one of us, we have times where we feel like the Lord has put us in a marathon and we cannot see the end of that race. And if the Lord were to come to you and tell you, hold on, you're just in a sprint, it will be over and you will have the rest of your eternity with me that can offer a peace and a reassurance and an endurance through that trial. We can find encouragement in knowing that our race is in the Lord's hands. But it also gives us a hope in eternity and a hope that all of our time will be redeemed in eternity. So if there are things that you look forward to and you say, I don't know how I will have the time to do those, you don't have to hold on to them. You can give them to the Lord and know that all of our time will be redeemed in eternity. So again, we submit our plans, we submit our time, and thirdly, we count our gain as lost. Now, James doesn't use that exact phrase here, but I think that's the point he's getting at. And, and I think he does it by using this idea of our life is just a mist. I think James is drawing from Old Testament wisdom literature, and specifically Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes has this, this beautiful and haunting refrain. You may have heard it as vanity of vanity. All is vanity. Well, the word there, and you may know this, but the word is mist or vapor. Vapor of vapor. All is vapor. And the, the, the wisdom idea, that Hebrew idea, is that life is fleeting. And it's not that life, all life is vain. It's not that all life is, is uh, bad. It's just that life is a mist compared to the eternal, more substantial realities of heaven, the more substantial realities of an eternal God. C.S. Lewis paints this picture beautifully in, in many of his writings, but in one of his writings, in The Great Divorce, he uses the example of someone who gets to visit heaven for a little while. And this, this person goes and they, they see a daisy on the ground and they try to pick it up and they can't even move it. And he says he, he labors with all his effort until the, the sweat is pouring and he's lost most of the skin on his hands and he hasn't even moved it. And when he, he gets wearied from his efforts, he sits down and he says, I noticed I could see the grass not only between my feet, but through them. I also was a phantom. And the point he's making is that we think our reality is so solid, but in comparison to the solider realities of heaven, we are just a mist. And so we can hold loosely to these things 
We don't need to put substantial weight on them that is not due to them. And when we do that, when we let go of our plans and our time and of our profit, we actually find that we aren't giving anything up, but rather we are trading them for the more secure reality that awaits us when we will abide with our Heavenly Father forever. And then, amazingly, we learn that God does not strip away our desires and our plans. So again, God is not calling us to give up. He's not, not calling us to never think about these things. Instead, God is urging us to bring our desires, to bring our plans, to bring our time and our profit all in line with the purposes of his will. If the Lord wills. Again, we will still live we will still plan and we will still do this or that, but our submission to the Lord strips away our presumption. And James is warning about letting those other things take first priority and all of them need to be submitted to the will of God. We cannot be what James would call in chapter one, double-minded. Instead, God wants us to be wholly focused on him. And when we are single-mindedly devoted to our God, our plans and our desires become shaped by his will, by his word, and conformed by his purposes. And when that happens, our presumptions turn into submission. Or said in another way, when by God's grace through his spirit, our perspective goes from what we typically say, our presumption, to what we ought to do, it changes everything that we do. From what we typically say to what we ought to say, that changes everything that we do. And that's our last point from verse 17. When God strips away our presumption, we are changed. Now, I confess I had a little bit of difficulty figuring out this verse when I first studied it. Uh, you know, it seems on the one hand, it's clearly connected to the passage. You see that in the first word. First word translated so. You could also translate it therefore. And right, therefore, is a linking word. It links back to the section before. So we know that this is coming. Verse 17 is coming after what James has just talked about. But it took me a while to figure out what the connection was. And, you know, it's almost as if James kind of tagged it on, I thought. And, and amazingly, some commentators even say that. Like, oh, well, this is just a tagged on at the end. But as I mulled over the truth of this passage, and as I knew the Lord has connected it for some reason, I found it easier to connect what was going on if I rephrased the line a little bit. James says in verse 17, Therefore, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And you can express a similar idea by taking away the double negative and rephrasing it in the positive. Therefore, whoever knows the right thing to do and does it, for him it is righteousness. I think that helped me understand that James is concerned about our righteousness. And he knows that when we, when we lose our presumption and when we give our plans and our time and our profit to the Lord, what we find is we find his grace. You see, this, this passage this morning is closely tied to the sections before and after it. And so looking back earlier in this chapter, earlier in chapter four, we find the wonderful truth that God opposes the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. And similarly, looking forward into chapter 5, verse 7, James reiterates the point with an exhortation and an encouragement. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. So God gives us grace, and we can be patient because the Lord is coming again to fully restore that grace in us. Because God is able to change us from the proud to the humble. He is able to take our plans, to take our time, to take our profit, and any gain that we might produce, and he is able to use that for his good. And so we'll close our time this morning reflecting just on two truths of this change. First, when God strips away our presumption, it frees us to act righteously. We become free to work and to plan and labor all for the glory of God. We don't work for men, so we are not bound by any worldly expectations. And that is a freedom given to God's people. And because we don't work for men, we are also free from tying our value to that work. So maybe uh, you and I confess that I fall prey to this. Maybe sometimes you wake up and you look around and you feel that you are a disappointment. Or maybe you look around and you feel that this wasn't quite what you had in mind for the life that you wanted for yourself. Maybe you feel an abiding sense of failure, that you don't amount to much and you don't amount to what you thought you should be or you don't amount to what others told you you should be. Brothers and sisters, this good news gives us freedom from that evil lie. By stripping away our presumption, by submitting us to his will, God allows us to live the life that he has set before us. It allows us to focus on just doing the next right thing and knowing that all of our plans, all of our time, all of our profit, it's not for our gain, but it's for the Lord's. And that brings us to the last truth of our passage and what we will close with today. We can give these things to the Lord because in doing so, we follow the pattern that he has set for us. Jesus Christ walked this pattern of humility before us. Jesus, who was the one who had every reason to presume, He is the one through whom all things were created. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And yet the scripture says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus laid aside any temptation to presume. And in doing so, he was exalted. You and I follow in that pattern. And we only do that by resting in the grace that he has given us. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would he give you and me the grace to know that truth, know that he is Lord, to follow in his path, to trust in his grace, and to turn from our presumptions and to submit to his will and walk in his way to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me? Lord, we confess that we are a presuming people. We would presume in our pride and our arrogance all our plans. We would presume that we know best about how to spend our time and what is best for our gain and the gain of others. So, Lord, we ask that you would give us the grace to turn from our presumption to your grace. Would you give us your spirit, Lord, that we might walk in your way, trust in you, boasting in our humiliation and our lowliness. This is a miracle that is not inherently in us. So Lord, we pray that your truth would do that in us for your glory. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.